speak of yeah, speak about Bridge on the River Kwai. Alex is at Sony right now, guys. You're you're being live recorded in the podcast. <laughs> Give Sony a little kiss for me. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 147. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about Kevin Smith and his debut movie, Clerks. Connor and I, specifically over the last month or so, because we program Clerks and we'll occasionally mention Kevin Smith, it just struck me. He's such an interesting filmmaking figure of the last 30 years, and I wanted to get into it. I even wrote a blog piece after I saw Clerks a few weeks ago and was suddenly reminded uh, how much I actually personally really like the movie and how I think it still holds up really, really well. But we'll see what other people think. Who is with us today? Uh, what's up? It's Daniel. Oh, nice. Look at Daniel chugging a beer at 1045 in the morning. Open a cold one. Hey, man, we're starting strong today. <laughs> hey, gamers, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Uh, and here's a guy who's not even supposed to be here today, Edwin Gomez. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't supposed to be here today, actually. America. Is Edwin Ardante? Of course he is. Supposed to be at work, but... I switched with someone and I forgot it was today and it all came together. And I'm Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. And it is wonderful to have everybody here. And this week, uh, by the time that you hear this, tonight we're actually doing our Terry Gilliam double with uh, La Jete. So La Jete, 12 Monkeys, which La Jete inspired. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, La Jete is this amazing uh, short French film, sci-fi film from the 1960s by Chris Marker, done completely with still photographs. Really inspiring if you're a movie maker because it creates a whole sci-fi future world and tells this incredible time travel story pretty cheaply, I would imagine, for how they made it. And then uh, that idea, so inspiring that... About 35, 36 years later, Terry Gilliam, uh, David Peoples, and Bruce Willis, uh, Brad Pitt, Madeline Stowe got together and made 12 Monkeys, which is a feature adaptation of that short. And then we're also showing what I would probably put forward as the greatest Terry Gilliam movie of his middle or late period for me, which is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is an amazing adaptation of the Hunter S. Thompson novel from the 70s about a real thing, I guess, that happened where Hunter S. Thompson and his lawyer went to Las Vegas, did mad amounts of drugs and survived, but basically kind of went crazy for a weekend in Las Vegas. My uncle, who is one of the straightest straight edge people you'll ever meet, loves that movie because he just can't believe it. And he worked in Las Vegas as the head of security for Caesar's Palace for a while. I guess that movie touches on something my uncle went through. I guess maybe with people he had to deal with as a security guy. Tomorrow, we are showing on 35 millimeter. I highly recommend you come see this if you've never seen this movie on the big screen. David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai. In many ways, I would put forward that the pinnacle of Lean is Bridge and Lawrence of Arabia. Those two movies are near untouchable. And David Lean has made many other great movies. Those are probably my two favorite Leans. It's pretty good. I would say. It's just amazing movie about uh, British POWs. It's, it's one of those great adventure movies, too, where one of them escapes, William Holden, and then comes back, and one of them goes crazy. That's Alec Guinness, but you got to watch the whole thing. Monday, we're doing our trivia night with Kyle Ayers, who was a comedian who did a lot of bits for Conan O'Brien. If you want to see who Kyle Ayers is, just go Kyle Ayers and Conan. And Kyle is going to be hosting a movie trivia night here at the Secret Movie Club Theater. Yes, there'll be movie trivia, but it's also kind of, what's that game, Baldur? Dash where you BS. It's kind of like Balderdash too, where he'll ask questions that can't have factual answers and whoever has the funniest answer wins. Wednesday is our open mic short night for April. 
Uh, we hope you'll come join us. And that is where you submit movies. By the time you hear this, the movies will be submitted. My favorite lean is uh, cough syrup with Sprite. <laughs> My favorite leans when you're at a party, but you're kind of tired of being at the party. So you're in the kitchen and you're kind of leaning against the sink and you're like, man, I wish I was out of here. Whoa. Did I know? And then, uh, oh, there is no Thursday. There's no Thursday? Like as a concept? No, yeah. I'm outlawing Thursday. For anybody who wants to stay on the Secret Movie Club team, Thursday ceases to exist. Uh, no, Thursday, actually, I'm honored. Um, I don't know if they want this known, so I'll be vague. But some filmmakers have rented us out for their film premiere. Yeah, I'm really honored. That's actually now happened. It's really picked up in 2023. So we've now hosted, I think, three premieres, four premieres. So I want to thank you, everybody who's making features and choosing Secret Movie Club to premiere their movies. Thank you. It's Kevin Feige, the Marvels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But young filmmakers are running our space, so God bless you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm one of them. I don't know um they told you, but I'm hosting another casting session at the club. I'm going to go ahead and say no to that. There's a security deposit for insurance. I'll reach out to you, Edwin. We'll get the, the details worked out. Yeah, f- you. That's also that's us technically it's my turf. I'm I'm in a I'm in a gang and so you need to pay me uh <laughs> oh, yeah? I need to be I need to be paid off. But it's like a West I want it to be a West Side story gang. Oh where yeah. You sing and dance as well. Well yeah, I got a knife cut. Edwin, you don't know how to use that knife for anything but cutting pizza. Hey man, if Rambo does it, I could do it. All I'd have to do, dude, is throw a jacket over you and I would neutralize that knife threat immediately. All right. So as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, you can check out our website at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, uh, we have our entire uh, spring season announced. And in fact, uh, we just announced it. But I, I like through some sleuthing. It's funny how ideas hit you. I was like, what day does Ferris Bueller's take place on? I'm curious. Is there an actual day? And it turned out to be June 5th. And uh, the reason they determined that is the game they're at, the Cubs game, was clearly a real Cubs game. Someone was like, oh, that Cubs game took place June 5th, 1985. So I was like, boom, ditch day. So, um, Monday, June 5th, 2023, we're going to the Million Dollar Theater and we are going to have a ditch day and watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off on 35 millimeter. And people are already getting tickets. So uh, I hope you will get tickets too. It's funny thinking about the 90s wave of filmmakers, which includes Richard Linklater, Allison Anders, Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, uh, David O. Russell, so many filmmakers, Kimberly Pierce, Catherine Bigelow's really from the 80s, but Kevin Smith was one of those, and I don't know if you really, if there was ever any, an American new wave exactly in the 90s, but I, I know that a lot of folks, oh, Robert Rodriguez, Alexander Rockwell, so many names, uh, Julie Dash, trying to like recall with my poor feeble dad brain all the names. During that time, I know that people who talk about cycles, there's the cycle of growth, then the cycle of flourishment, and then decadence. And this was right before the decadence of film festivals. So at the height of the Sundance Film Festival, in terms of you could make a movie on credit cards and it could get bought by a, a major mini, which would be like a Miramax or a Sony Pictures Classics or a Fox Searchlight. That 90s period was really the last time in a lot of ways that filmmakers could go from nothing to making huge movies within one movie, but in an auteur sense. Uh, Kevin Smith could go from Clerks to Mallrats. Anyway, so Kevin Smith sees Richard Linklater's Slacker, which is an amazing movie. Everyone should see Slacker. Slacker was made at the very tail end of the 80s, very beginning of the 90s in Austin. It was actually Linklater's second movie. Interestingly, his first movie is You Can't Learn to Plow by Reading Books, which just stars him traveling around the country. Has anyone seen that one? No. No, you, you can only see it as a special feature 
feature on the Slacker Blu-ray, which we should almost do. Oh, I'm lying. Then I have, yes. Okay. Sorry, I thought you said Kevin Smith, and I was like, he has the same movie? So Richard Linklater had already made a movie in the 80s. Then he made a second movie, Slacker, which is a like zero budget, following around all these really weird Austin-type personalities. So Kevin Smith sees Slacker. And it's, it's worth noting in the clerk's credits in the special thanks at the end, it says Richard Linklater, Hal Hartley, Spike Lee, and Jim Jarmusch for leading the way. Basically, Kevin Smith is watching the 80s Cats. He's going, wait, I can do that, which is great. I always love that. That should always be the way. And Kevin Smith is this suburban New Jersey guy working at a convenience store. And he had actually gone to film school, come back. It's a longer story. I'm going to abbreviate it. But he goes, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it because I work at a convenience store that's right next to a video store. And I'm going to write the script. And it's going to be about my experience. And I, I know I can get the boss. And I think his pitch to the boss was, I'll come back and work for you if you let me shoot when you're closed. And the boss was like, <laughs> and that's sort of how Clerks was born. And Clerks is this movie about one day in the life of uh, this character, Dante, who gets called into work at the Quickie Mart because someone else can't work. His best friend is Randall, who works uh, next door at the video store. Randall is the sort of sharp-tongued, almost cynical. Dante is sort of the sensitive poet. They work across this day. All these weird people come in. It's very episodic. Dante is dealing with girlfriend issues. He's got a wonderful girlfriend, but he can't deal with the fact that she had a very active sexual life before him because he learns that she was with a lot of guys in terms of giving them head basically fellatio and she doesn't see that as a big deal because she's only slept with a few guys but dante is weirded out that she's hooked up with way more guys in an oral sex way his girlfriend the one he pines for comes back into town and this is basically the story of the movie goes to sundance huge hit it was called inconvenienced it ended actually with a really tragic ending where dante got shot and killed by some guy who's mugging him harvey weinstein uh disgraced dethroned harvey weinstein at the time the kingmaker which we all have to recognize you we can all talk about what a dog he is worse than a dog but at the time everybody and this includes quentin tarantino ben affleck matt damon everybody wanted to be I'm not even going to use the pun because it's in poor taste now, but everybody wanted to work with Harvey Weinstein. Can I side note? We should reclaim the word dog. I don't like dog being associated as a negative thing. I love dogs. Totally. He's just a goop. He's just a goop. A slimy little mucky goop. Awful person. Um, nevertheless, like many awful people, a person in power, and he buys clerks or inconvenienced at the time at Sundance, but he says, you got to change the ending. And they do. And they give it a more happy, actually a very happy ending in a way. And it's still a great ending. It doesn't feel like, a, I, I didn't even know it had a different ending until I found out. I'm guessing they also did a lot of sound editing probably, added in like the songs and oh, things for like sure. that. Yeah, that's the same thing with El Mariachi that people have to remember is that when they say that El Mariachi was made, Robert Rodriguez's movie for $10,000, probably totally true. But the post-production once Sony bought it, when Columbia bought it was like $400,000. I think Evil Dead is the same way. The point being, Kevin Smith's Clerks comes out and influences everybody. He's got a great script. He's got an ear for dialogue. But his career after that, which we're going to get into, has been very hit or miss. A lot of people a few years later would really dog Kevin Smith and say like, oh, he doesn't know how to make movies, this, that, or the other thing. And yet, I think that this is not fair to Kevin Smith and how influential that moment was, how interesting Clerks is. And how we have to look at Kevin Smith as a real influential moment in movie uh, history in America. I rewatched it this weekend for the first time in a long time. And I guess I'll wait to broaden out about exact my, my Kevin Smith 
relationship. But when it comes to clerks, you dated Kevin Smith. Yeah, we oh. were we were an item for a little while uh, um, before his current wife. Back in the day when I was a toddler. Uh, what? Yeah, uh, this is great, great stuff. Um, yeah, it's a good movie still, largely. I, it, it definitely not the kind of thing I'm as into as I was into it when I was into it. <laughs> Just because I've talked about this before in college, I kind of had a shift in terms of some of my tastes. But I still largely enjoyed it. Some stuff works, some stuff doesn't. It is one of those things where Kevin Smith always insulted himself as a director. And I think there's visual things I get. But he's surprisingly always been good with actors. Like, this is a movie filled with non-actors giving really, like, solid performances. It's, it's funny when you watch a movie with, like, consistently bad performances. Like, the Star Wars prequels or something. <laughs> you, you, you know that this was, like, a special talent that that director had to suck that ability out because non-actors being directed by a guy who's never done this before give more passionate performances. You can definitely tell he's not an accomplished director in the sense that there's like stuttering sometimes in the lines where you would want to do it again. But that could also be a byproduct of how little like yeah. footage they had and how many takes they could do. Totally. That's such a good point, Connor. I, when I went to film school, I, I disagreed with this. They would talk about how the director's primary role was performance. And I totally disagreed with that. It, it, but nevertheless, I think the point they were making, seen another way, is if you don't understand acting and performance, you're missing a huge part of what directing and storytelling is. Completely. And, and he's always been good about that. And there's something about the paired back visuals in this one, I think, probably as a byproduct of how limited his footage was. It's also kind of interesting. It, it reminds me of like the early Jarmusch stuff visually where, where it's these very like pulled back composed shots. And, you know, you can make fun of Kevin Smith with all the like close-ups of the feet and stuff when he uses that to like cut between takes. But, you know, it's, that's actually, it's smart. Oh, totally. Cutaways. I think the one other thing I'll say about this movie is uh, I was worried about how some of the like sexual politics will, would hold up. But I think what makes it mostly work is that any of the things that come off as maybe regress? Well, I mean, the, the stuff that happens towards the end is pretty messed up, and they don't give it the weight that it probably should have, considering how messed up it is. We, we should we should mention what that is, which is that a girl he's pined after, had an on again, off again relationship, comes back, expresses an interest in him, and he is going to go out on a date with her, and a dude has died in the bathroom reading a girly mag, and she essentially has sex with him, thinking she's having sex with Dante. Because the joke being the guy has died and like rigor mortis with his erection is set in. And then she's traumatized and gets on an ambulance. And it's sort of played as a throwaway joke. Yeah, but the earlier parts of the movie hold up better in terms of it's like the stuff with Dante and his current girlfriend is so clearly based in Smith's own personal sexual hangups. Because Randall, who's much more of like a kind of a voice of reason in a way, like he's like the voice of the thing. He never has an issue with that kind of stuff. Randall is a freely sexual. And in fact, he rents that tape of he refers to them as maphrodites of uh, chicks with a word that rhymes with chicks um, with sticks. <laughs> that's one thing I always loved about Kevin Smith is that he had that open sexuality where it was just like. 
who cares? Like people be nothing. Like, <laughs> like you just gotta, you gotta, you know what I mean? Like who cares what's going on? The very last thing I noted some of the credits you were talking about that edit, Scott Mosier, the producer, his like producing partner is credited as the initial incompetent sound editor. And then there's another guy credited as accomplished sound editor, James Von Bulow. And then, and lastly, the cat's name is apparently Lennon's tomb. <laughs> <laughs> That's dope. Look at let's wake him up. Edwin. No, I'm still awake. I'm just uh, listening. Edwin, more and more you remind me of like a reclining Buddha. Uh, you know, well, Buddha was a cool guy, man. He was a laid back dude. I didn't know him, to be honest. I mean, uh, oh, okay. uh, clerks. It's okay. It's not great. It's okay. Uh, I like the other early, uh, later uh, Kevin Smith pictures. Uh, my two personal favorites are Mall Rats and. Jane, Son of Braba, Strike Back. Those are my two favorites. And maybe Jersey Girl. Just cut out the Jennifer Lopez part and go him to Raising a Child. Which is, I think it's a lot better in my opinion. I don't know how to describe this, but I, if you put a gun to my head and said which two Kevin Smith movies are Ed- Edwin's favorites, I think those would have been my guesses. Yeah, they're the most like broad comedy. His most, his biggest like broad '90s comedy swings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Clerks, you know. Like the movie says, uh, you know, actually, like like, like the guy says, he's not, he's not even supposed to be here today. Like I am right now. I'm not supposed <laughs> to be here today. I was supposed to be at the theater uh, doing my job, but no, I end up just coming here and talking about Clerks, which is uh, an okay movie. Um, you know what's funny, Edwin? You're sort of the 2023 embodiment of the characters in that movie. You work as an usher and you at a bookstore and you get called Hollywood in all Legion. the time. And the lead, yeah. You're in your early 20s. Edwin, you're about to make your, it's not fair to call it your debut, but the biggest scale project you've done. Do you watch people, directors, their first, I mean, it's a feature, but in in the realm of like, they had all these things working against them and like the limitations of budget. Do you view any of like directors you like's first movies with like an eye toward like, what will I do better or what will I sort of mimic? Not in terms of like framing, but like the spirit of these, of this low budget fairs well clerk is a big one because it's all set in one location i believe plus uh, he used a place where he works so he could pretty much shoot it there for free which is a great choice um hence why i'm shooting outside a club because one i can get away with it second i can just use the club for like drop off equipment and have lunch there so that's free i hope all of things he's not discussed with me by the way <laughs> i know but still also, I just want the audience to notice something. Does Edwin ask any of his other places of work for this? Uh, no, because uh, they're two big businesses. We're, we're just like, chill, you know, chill. Do you cut any slack for, like, in terms of how clerks look or how it feels? Do you find it charming? I do. I do. Especially um, Randall, who works at the video store. I, I pretty much relate to him a lot because, you know. Why not? You work in a video store. You're talking about movies and do nerd stuff. Similar vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, we, we're introduced to two of the greatest characters ever created by Kevin Smith, Jay and Silent Bob. You know, if, if it weren't for that movie, actually, and weren't for those two characters, we'd never have gotten the whole uh, cinematic Kevin Smith universe because Jay and Silent Bob appear in most of uh, Kevin Smith movies, and they all, I, I'm assuming, all take place in the same universe. Do they appear in Tusk? No, they don't. Oh. They don't They don't appear in his horror movies. Yeah, they don't, which is kind of a bummer, because, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. It's too spooky. They do appear in Scream 3, though. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Wes Craven, Wes Craven, uh, Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith, you know, 
Miramax Dimension Films, the same man. But I, I I did watch the alternate ending, and uh, thank God they changed it because that would have been very depressing, and also it would have destroyed the, the Kevin Smith universe if he had done that. Because Dante is also part of that too, because he appears in a couple of Kevin Smith movies as the, that character, which is pretty cool. So again, um. Not supposed to be here today, man. I want to get out of here. I, I feel like I, I align with Connor on this. Clerks was sort of preached in like the books I was reading because it was sort of in the weird stage where I was getting really into movies right before the internet was like fully accessible to me. Like it was still dial up and a, a pain in the butt. But the video store dynamic when I rented this from a video store and some of the books I had been reading about like sort of ninety because you know I was obsessed with like the nineties slew of people that were making things with no money and I haven't rewatched. I think the last time I watched just was right before Clerks 2 came out and I haven't rewatched it since and I sort of went into this rewatch the other day with the expectation that this would be just nasty and not hold up and I was pleasantly surprised I think there's definitely some stuff that is you know a time capsule to the era and what was being said but so much of it uh, there's such like a genuineness to these characters like the sexual politics that Dante is frustrated with I love that he gets checked for all of them because it really makes him look like an an a-hole I think Randall's entire thing is Randall's the person you'd sort of expect to like be on Team Dante, but he questions him at every turn, as a good friend should. Maybe oversteps at a certain point, but sort of like the honest friend that they're both in the struggle together, but also like he doesn't, you don't get to behave, you don't get to act this way when you behave in the same way type of thing toward his girlfriend. I forget too how much stuff is put, like how many quotes of this are pulled and referenced to today. The Death Star Destruction conversation about the contractors and stuff is such a perfect 2 a.m. conversation you have with your buddies after getting mysterious, maybe that's the terminology. But yeah, it's such an interesting... All of the choices that were made for budget feel intentional almost, like the really grainy 16mm look and black and white to hide some of the the lighting choices that they can't pull off and it was cheaper to develop. It makes it feel like this time capsule in a really specific way. I don't know. I, I find it so charming. I was very surprised to come back to this and find that it still held up pretty well. I think I've, well, I know I've mentioned it. I was surprised, not surprised. I really enjoyed the rewatch, uh, probably because when you watch movies that made an impression on you when you were a certain age, Sometimes the association, the Proustian association, puts you back in that headspace, which sometimes can be very helpful as a sort of like recalibration of, right, oh, yeah, 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 I felt that and I feel this. It's a nice reminder, too, because I feel like sometimes, you know, our taste changes and a reminder of why something touched us in a specific way when it did is important as like a humbling thing. Because even if you don't, revisiting the movie may not love it the way you used to, but you can feel why it hits you the way it hits you at the specific age that it may have hit you. And I think that's such a cool thing, too. It was one of the first movie posters I ever put up in my room. Same. I remember. And it was because I, I've told this story a bunch. I'll make it quick. But I went to a video store called Video Laguna with five Persian brothers. They ran it. They all knew movies like the back of their hand. They knew all our names. I even remember a really sad thing where I went in there for the last time to rent a movie, The Lives of Others, interestingly, to watch with my stepdad. And they were closing because it was the end of the video store era. And uh, the eldest brother, who was like the one who was holding down the fort, looked at me and he was like, Mr. Schmitz. And that was my stepdad's name because that had always been the name the account was under. And I, you know, I wasn't going to correct him and be like, ah, it's Hamill actually, but I was like, oh, hey. And he had this really sad look in his eye as I rented the DVD or Blu-ray of the lives of others for me and my stepdad. But I got clerks there and they used to have all these posters because the posters would come in that they would advertise the new releases of the videos and they would give them to me. They would be like, yes, take them. 
please. So I took like clerks. And then I made a movie when I was a senior in high school called Things Happen about a guy who's woken up by his mother at midnight to go get some milk. And he goes to the local grocery store and he meets all these characters in the local grocery store, including his former girlfriend who like is a bagger there. And all this stuff happens. And when I look at it, I'm like, that's clearly clerks. Like <laughs> I clearly <laughs> was so influenced by clerks that I wrote this movie called Things Happen. And so it's, it's interesting to see that. And I, I think the thing that's interesting watching it is I think it still works because at heart you feel like Kevin Smith is an introspective guy and he's writing honestly about his experience and he's training the fire is the wrong way to put it. But he's very critical of himself if the Dante character is in some ways an alter ego for Kevin Smith. And you like Dante. Dante's actually a pretty responsible guy. And But at the end of the movie, Randall, as you guys were talking about, sort of schools Dante and says, like, you don't even see what you have. And, you know, you've got this wonderful woman and who cares and da, da, da. So there's a self-awareness. I think, whereas I think other movies you'll see and they really truly are misogynistic or they really truly are super dated or their their politics are totally wrong now. And that's because the character or the filmmaker didn't have an introspection or a self-awareness. But I think sometimes when you make a humanist movie based on your experience, even Jay and Silent Bob, you feel like, well, those are probably guys that would hang out outside of a quickie mart. So whatever Jay and Silent Bob say, they're dealing like, marijuana and whatever because jay says some pretty outrageous stuff in the movie but you're like oh yeah that's probably the local pot dealer in suburban new jersey jason muse is really funny in in this in his little scenes his last little thing when he just says a string of cuss words at dante as he leaves is uh is really funny totally and what's interesting about that is that I guess if you guys know the Jason Mewes story, he was hanging out with Kevin Smith's friends and Kevin Smith got really angry and jealous because Jason Mewes then assumed that he and Kevin Smith were friends. And Kevin Smith was like, no, you're just friends with my friends. That doesn't make you my friend because Jason Mewes showed up one morning wanting to hang out with Kevin Smith. But then Kevin Smith had some light bulb of like, this guy's a character. I think the story was one time they were waiting for him and Jason walked in to a room and then just went around the entire room miming filleting everything in the room and that's what i think won jason over for kevin smith so what's so interesting about kevin smith's story is that unlike say a Quentin Tarantino. I think you have to say of all those cats from the 90s, you know, and I'm excluding people like uh, Peter Jackson. I think that's sort of a different world. And Peter Jackson technically, I think, was late 80s. But Quentin Tarantino being an example of, same actual story, weirdly, as Richard Linklater. Quentin Tarantino made a movie called My Brother's Wedding. Do you guys know about this? Vaguely. Mm-hmm. That like he refuses to even acknowledge. And I guess they stopped making at some point. That was his first feature. Then he made Reservoir Dogs. Harvey Keitel comes on board obviously you know Reservoir Dogs incredible film one of my favorite Tarantinos to this day and that launches him and then he makes Pulp Fiction and wins the Palm Door and ever since then Quentin Tarantino is operating at the highest echelons of filmmakers and then you get people sort of in the next level or or you know Paul Thomas Anderson I don't even know if you I don't want to tear this because Paul Thomas Anderson made There Will Be Blood and you know and you get people like Wes Anderson who basically has had no problem getting movies financed ever since Rushmore and Royal Tannenbaums Kevin Smith though has a rockier road he makes Mallrats which uh, basically is 
a bigger budget version of Clerks, uh, all takes place in a mall. Then he makes Chasing Amy, which has Ben Affleck in it. And actually, I think most people would probably put Clerks and Chasing Amy right at the top of Kevin Smith's work. Really has a great emotional, it kind of revisits the sexual politics of Clerks in an interesting way. And then from there, Kevin Smith will continue to make movies that are hit or miss. He becomes a guy who's very resourceful. He makes a second career as a podcaster and going out on college tours because he's such a raconteur and storyteller, which you can hear. He makes a very controversial movie, Dogma, about the Catholic Church because he is to this day a practicing Catholic. But he pulls a kind of suburban New Jersey comedy, Last Temptation of Christ, where he goes out of his way to be as controversial as possible. But in the service of actually ultimately reaffirming his faith. And then he wants to break out of the mold. He makes horror movies and he's still making movies to this day, but it feels to me like Kevin Smith has had to fight. People love him, hate him or in the middle. He sort of divides people in a really interesting way. So I think his filmmaking career is maybe more realistic to what many people who have a great first film encounter, which is the fight, but he certainly has fought to this day. Well, you know, uh, he's, uh, you know he's, a, he's a nerd, man. He's uh, one, of, like, one of the biggest famous super nerds uh, in the history of uh, nerdium, man. Guy's a good filmmaker, even though it, mo movies are hit and miss sometimes. Very talkative guy, uh, very, uh, you know, he loves the game, man. He loves the game. One of my all-time favorite Kevin Smith movies, Mallrats. I actually, believe it or not, that's the first movie I start off with. That's where I was introduced to Kevin Smith and Mallrats to this day is probably one of the funniest movies ever made. And also uh, Dogma, I think, is his best film ever because one, trash at the Catholic Church. F*** yeah, man. I love that. And God is a, is a woman. Right on. Represent. Great. <laughs> Edwin, you are a beautiful contradiction. Yeah, I know. I, I want I you at some point in your future to think about the two statements you just made. Yeah, and I, I know what I said. I know what I said. Yeah, come on, Captain Church. I'm right here. Captain Church? Whoa. That new superhero character, Captain Church. To wrap it up, um, Kevin Smith is one of the greatest nerds ever. Also one of the greatest stoners of our generation, man. I mean, he's Gen X, and we're different generations also. So. I'm still going with it, man. Still going with it. Uh, I was super, super, super into Kevin Smith in high school. Not just his movies, but his like podcasts and all that stuff. I was super into that world. And, you know, rewatching Clerks, it's, it's definitely not as sort of like earth shattering as it felt back then. But, but that's maybe not fair to it because, of course, it isn't because I've seen it before, you know. And I would still definitely, obviously, if people are, you know, younger, if I had a kid and when they got to like 16, 17, 18, uh, and they wanted to start seeing kind of more adult stuff, I would 100% say like, oh, he's like, this is a great place to go and like a great set of movies to watch. I did fall off after Red State. I remember watching Red State. That was his first attempt at a horror movie and thinking, huh, this isn't good. <laughs> I, I have not really seen any of Kevin Smith's movies for a long, long time. And Red State really marked for me a different phase of his career and definitely the most hit or miss since. What about Red State, which was his first, I don't want to make a comedy. I want to make a legitimate horror movie in a different genre why didn't it work one is i think he doesn't have like the genre brain like on a structural level i remember it feeling pretty like meandering and more than anything some of the stuff he was trying to do is a, a lot more visual than he is known for and so you would get scenes of like a firefight it would just be like 
one person shooting a gun and then cut to a shot of somebody shooting a gun in the opposite direction and then that would be the firefight and it's kind of boring (laughs) it just kind of lacks that sort of what you want out of somebody who's making a type of genre film like that to have that sort of grasp of space and tempo i mean his dialogue was still good he's always been good with that and the way people like talk but I remember being really flat because I because I was sort of like hoping when I watched it, like, oh, is this going to be like he's going to really embrace this side of thing? And it felt kind of half assed in that way. I do think it's, you know, Kevin Smith in the circles we run in became kind of a punchline. <laughs> and it is kind of a bummer. And I'm not putting the blame on him because I do agree with what you said. It is that fight. But I think there's a lot of people who give him a little too much SHIT for my taste, even if you don't necessarily like his movies, considering how much he has he has had to fight and he's had to cultivate like a specific audience. You know, if you're being rigorous, what you said, I think, has to be acknowledged. And I think he's acknowledged it, too. He He's probably more a dialogue writer, like his talents lie in dialogue and character. They don't really lie in cinema, editing, cinematography. But he's interesting in that he's also been very resourceful as a proto filmmaker who was like, I have to build an audience and I have to build an audience with the new tools of media. I think as a case study, you don't have to like Kevin Smith movies, but there's something interesting about, oh, he, you know, he really wanted to make movies. You don't have to like his movies, just like you don't have to like Neil Breen movies if you don't like Neil Breen movies. But somehow he's making he's figuring out a path. That's interesting to me. And, and I'll never be able to deny I, I can still feel his influence in my own dialogue when I write it now. There's an artistry to being garrulous that he has at his best moments that um, is great. I was definitely um, a fan and, and influenced if I think about that time because it, he was creating things, especially in his first few, that felt attainable at my level to a degree. It felt like something you could go out and create yourself. And and the idea that it wasn't that it was winning awards. It was, the, it was winning awards that were a big deal when seemingly it was created by friends. It sort of elevated it where it felt like this thing you could do, which I think I've said uh, about other filmmakers of that era. But Clerks, when you watch Clerks, you sort of think, I could do that. And there's obviously so much more to it that creatively and artistically in, in terms of the writing, etc. But I think that's such an appealing thing. And he is a person so interesting because while I definitely have trailed off on uh, some of his later stuff hasn't really uh, worked for me in the same way. There's still this specific type of thing he carries, which is... I'm doing this because I want to and I'm going to bring my friends in to do it with me that I think doesn't quite work for me. But I, I think there's an interesting appeal where there's releases like I think it was called Yoga Yoga ho- hosers? Yoga Hosers that didn't work for me at all, but also such an odd like, OK, he wanted to cast his daughter and his friend's daughter and has this odd idea and has the resources for it. But I think even more interesting than that is just Kevin Smith as a brand to a degree. Like, I now think of him more for his An Evening With specials that I watched as a teenager and just sort of him as a storyteller through, and I, I haven't really listened to them, but I know he has a very successful podcast network. Sort of that reign of like Kevin Smith as like a public speaker, love him or hate him. I find him such an engaging storyteller that I sort of now, I think of Clerks, I think of Mallrats and maybe Dogma and and Chasing Amy to a degree. And then I sort of think of that chunk of him where he's this live entertainer to a degree that he just comes and tells stories. And it's such an odd thing that works for him. And I think that's 
fascinating. And maybe in an interesting way, pointing out his strength, which is sort of a rock on tour telling stories. And I think the stories feel, again, again, I think they speak to like the young filmmaker idea of like, this is possible. For whatever it's worth, I saw him once. We were eating together. Did, has anyone ever eaten at uh, Tex? The restaurant in uh, Echo Park. That sounds awful. It's a French restaurant, T-A-I-X. So I used to live in Echo Park and we'd occasionally go there. And it's cool. It's like an old school, uh, sort of a Musso and Franks, maybe a more working class Musso and Franks. But I was there in a booth and I looked and Kevin Smith was one booth away from me talking to what I have to imagine was his publicist or his agent or someone. This is my guess. I mean, I, I have no idea. And he had a, a really, um, agi not agitated, but he seemed like, he was frustrated about something when he was talking to his agent and they were having a meal and he just didn't seem like that was a good day for him. And I remember looking at him and, you know, not staring and then just going back to my meal. But I was like, oh, I hope, I wonder what's going on with Kevin Smith. He looks a little upset today. My TikTok is popping up some of those an evening with Kevin Smith things and I'm watching them. And he told this story about Superman lives have you guys heard that whole story about how he bagged on the script and then he met with John Peters and John Peters literally said the thing he says in uh, Licorice Pizza, which was crazy to me, where he was like, you know why Superman Liz is going to be good? Because you and I are on it and we're from the streets. And Kevin <laughs> Smith was like, I'm from suburban New Jersey and you were Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. And Kevin Smith told a great story. Kevin Smith goes into Warner's. They give him three properties. He goes, I want to do Superman Reborn, I guess is what it was called at the time. And they're like, ah, you got to go through this whole thing. And what did they give him the script? What do you think? And oh, Kevin Smith's like, this sucks. You paid someone to write this? Like, was this somebody's cousin? That's all he said. Then they kept inviting him in to just bag on the script and more and more people showed up. And they were like, look, go meet John Peters. So he goes, John Peters says the same thing. And John Peters like, okay, I'm going to take a chance on you, kid, or whatever. And he's like, okay, they're just three directives. He can't fly. <laughs> he can't wear the uniform because it's too Boy Scouty. And uh, there's got to be a big giant spider in the third act. And so Kevin Smith tells a much longer story. But here's my point. I was listening to the story. I was captivated. He had me. I was laughing. The audience was laughing. But I also thought, yikes, this isn't great politically for you because now you've bagged on John Peters You've sort of made the execs at Warner Brothers at the time not look super great. And as funny a story as it is, you're never going to hear a Spielberg or a Scorsese telling a story. They're very crafty if you hear how they tell stories. Scorsese hated somebody at Columbia. You can look up who it was for Taxi Driver. But Scorsese will never, he'll kind of tell the story very diplomatically. But I hope he retires. When he retires, he gives a tell-all and just unloads. You know that. You guys all know that story, right? With, with the gun. Tarantino tells the story all the time. Scorsese will never tell the story. I'm not going to get into it right here. But the point is that Scorsese diplomatically won't tell that story. But Kevin Smith tells this hilarious story. I'm laughing, but I was like, I wonder if some of your troubles are that you're not going to play the game. And look, I get it. The game kills a lot of people. It kills a lot of souls. It sort of famously has destroyed entire countries worths of people's dreams but if you're going to tell stories like that it's probably going to be hard if you go to want to get a project off the ground or have someone read the script and be like you know what i was that guy and now i'm at this company and da da da, da. anyway he also told a prince story because prince invited him to shoot music videos did you guys hear that yeah, yeah, yeah. his prince story is hilarious too and then i know i know also that giant spider ended up in wild wild west <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah john peters shoehorned the giant spider in wild wild west um i have a lot of respect for Kevin Smith because he's a lifer. Frankly, he didn't flame out. 
He's done it his way. He's been very resourceful. After Clerks and Chasing Amy, those are the two movies I really, really like. And, and I do actually find Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. They're funny bits in it. And actually, as a piece of comfort food, I do like Clerks too. Yeah. Specifically for Rosario Dawson, who I was like, good casting. Good casting, Kevin Smith. I will watch your movie for two hours because Rosario Dawson is in it. You win. But I, I, you know, I haven't seen Tusk. I haven't seen Red State. I haven't seen Yoga Hosers. I haven't seen Clerks 3. I haven't seen Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Because at a certain point, those weren't going to be for me. But I can still admire Kevin Smith being a scrapper, which I think you have to be. I just, my hat's off to him as a scrapper. He's scrapper and uncompromising. Like he's going to make the stuff he wants to make for himself. Yeah. And that's, that's a rarity. So hats off Kevin Smith. He's doing it his way. Like Sinatra. Totally. Pop culture, final thoughts. Talk about anything that is not what we just talked about. I'll just say beat the RE4 remake. Good stuff. I watched Exorcist 3 for my movie night for Easter. The movie rips. The movie rules. I heard it's really good. It's so good. It's really good. And for a movie directed by an author, that would be a great pairing with something like Saint Maud or something. Also, uh... I want to give a big rest in peace to Klaus Tuber, the designer of the Settlers of Catan, who uh, passed away this last week. Can you tell me what that is? Because everyone's talking about it, and I'm unfortunate. I don't know what that is. It's been a lot of people's introduction to like the more modern era of board games. It's pitched like right at the right level, where it's just a step more complicated than classic board games, but it's not that much more complicated. And so like like my parents can play Catan. They can't play it well, but uh, <laughs> that's a good like intro too. if you've played all the classic, your clues and your scrabbles and da 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 and you want something a little more complicated, uh, Catan is great. It's just like a multiplayer game where you're you're building little towns and generating resources and trying to build, outbuild your opponents. And uh, yeah, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHala. Uh, you know, it's you know, pretty busy. Pretty, pretty, pretty busy. I'm going to start work at the Hollywood Legion this Wednesday, Thursday. I'll, I'll finally get to see Airport on 70mm on one of the greatest screens in the world with a great sound system. Also, um, I took a trip over to the Gardenia Cinema to see... Uh, Mikey's projecting a beautiful 60-millimeter print of uh, Wes Craven's Serpent in the Rainbow, which uh, really kicked ass. I forgot how great that movie was. And, and it's my first time going to that theater, and uh, I was, like, been blown away how beautiful it is, especially the auditorium. That theater holds 800 seats. It could qualify as a movie palace as well because it, it's huge and the screen is amazing. You know, the person that runs it, uh, Ju- Judy, yeah, she, Ju- she's an incredibly nice person. I have, I have a nice conversation with her and, uh, you know, she's a really sweet person. Of course, um, you know, just wish uh, we get more people out there doing to experience that theater before it goes away. But, uh, you know. If you have $10 million, you can buy it. They announced it's not going away anymore. It's becoming a non-profit. I know, it's going non-profit. I heard about yeah. that. Yes. Very cool. That's right. Very good. I I figured I was gonna have it regardless because one, show the classics, you know, and also um I saw the Fun House again on sixteen millimeter at Whammy, which was pretty cool. That movie. Well, even though it was not the cut I wanted to see, apparently it was a UK cut. But other than that, um, movies movies very good. It's like one of like Toby Hooper's like best horror movies. And uh, you know what I did, Feaster? I saw Evan Almighty Connor. Suck it. Oh.
Yeah. Exorcist 3 is cooler than Evan Almighty as an Easter pick. How's that as a double bill? There you go. <laughs> one will have Edwin in the audience. The other one will have a nice crowd. You, you ain't got Morgan <laughs> Freeman's God, man. Huh? Morgan Freeman's Jesus, man. Jesus. Boom. Your face, Craig. I went to go see with Sir Connor the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Oh, what's the review? I genuinely loved it. A big surprise. I was kind of psyched on it because there were some very bad trailers for it, but also some very entertaining ones. It is so clearly made by people who love the property. And the joke is never making fun of the people that love it. The joke is always referencing internally to like the lore of Dungeons and Dragons. And it the movie feels the way that the best, and I'm just to to hype up Connor, the way that a great DM makes a Dungeons and Dragons experience goes, and Connor's a great DM. It feels like a, a group playing Dungeons and Dragons at the height of at its most fun in the best ways. It's 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 a very good time. It's the same directors as a uh, game night, which was also a huge surprise hit. For me. And one of those directors was an actor in Freaks and Geeks, no? Yep. John Francis Daly, little Sam Weir. They actually made a promo because in Freaks and Geeks, he and his buddies play Dungeons and Dragons. They made a promo on Twitter where him and Martin Starr and the guy who played Neil, whose name I'm forgetting, reprised their roles for like a minute long sketch as like a promo for D&D movie. Yeah, it's really cool. It's definitely, um, if the time allows to check out, Hugh Grant's still doing his like renaissance right now of self-aware, but... Character actor. Yeah, just killing it. It's great. I'm, I'm a fan. So something that's really interesting right now, and I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, I guess I pose this more as a question that I'm intrigued by, and I know a lot of people are also thinking about this, I think. I don't know if you guys are thinking about this, but have you guys uh, been following this swatting thing that's happening? I mean, I'm I mean, I'm mean, aware of swatting. Yeah, aware of the term, but not of a, if there's a new trend happening. So swatting, for folks who don't know, is when people call in fake school shootings, but it's beyond that, actually. They'll call it in, and then almost immediately, all this social media will show video footage as if it's happening, and all these accounts will pop up, and they'll do them in towns like in Idaho and Tennessee, and then the parents will go, and the police will say, we've cleared the school. There's no school shooter. And the parents will be like, no, I saw it on Facebook. There are three people down in there. And they're trying to figure out who's gaining from this, what this is about. And they're listening to the 911 calls, and they're beginning to think that it's a disinformation, misinformation campaign by folks who just want to sow a bunch of discord in the United States. And by elsewhere, I mean, I'm sure we do it too. The other thing that's interesting is... I was talking to Connor about TikTok and I was thinking to myself, you know, TikTok is actually a perfect way and all these things that are popping up on Facebook, Instagram, and whoever else is imitating the TikTok model of sucking time. Like you literally can kill the productivity of a country with phones by finding their algorithm. And if you're mathematically ridding productivity of a half hour, an hour a day, you are lowering the productivity of that country uh, immeasurably. And so I'm beginning to think about how statecraft is being waged these days. And I know everyone's talking about, and Connor was mentioning the chat GBT and the AI and and all this stuff. And I, I just would say to folks, I don't have an answer. I'm posing a question. I'm not taking a political side, but I do think it behooves us to be aware that there are a lot of bad actors everywhere who are using the tools that we use for diversion for statecraft. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what kind of level of self-awareness we can come to 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 not give into it. 
but I am thinking about it. Stuff like swatting's been around for a long time. It was used for like streamers. People would capture streamers' information and call in like a, a threat of some sort that would get a team sent to their home and it would be captured live because they were streaming. That's sort of a thing. So it's so interesting to see that the ways that things are so used for good and then the way that they're immediately also used for for evil stuff and you know how do we contend that's a non-statement but you know i think it's always important to remember that whatever the technology is at the time there was always bad actors i remember this great history podcast about when the printing press came out in the middle ages there were a bunch of people that printed fake bibles that had books and things that were never in the bibles that were in latin so that sort of fake con artists i mean it's still happening to this day could go around and say well it's in the bible i can have 10 wives and you've got to give me a thousand dollars and this that and the other thing and so they were just using the technology available at the time so anyway interesting thing all right, guys, Secret Movie Club Podcast 148 is going to be about my favorite crazy movie of all time, Russ Meyer's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, made in 1970, and also its screenwriter, a very young Roger Ebert. At the time, he was already a film critic, but would go on to become one of the most well-known American film critics. And we're just sort of going to talk about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and then Ebert and that nexus and what happened. And actually, we'll see where the conversation goes. As always, this podcast was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. And you can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Please come check out things we're doing. Tonight, we got a double of Terry Gilliam. Tomorrow, David Lean. And on and on. Bridge on the River Fly. All on film, by the way. That's it. So, guys, have a great week. Thank you for another really great conversation.